Do you feel that in a time when we are more connected than ever, we are drifting away from real human connection, especially to ourselves? I do. Hi, I'm Leticia Latino, and I want to invite you to join me and my very inspiring guests in exploring ways to reconnect to your essence, to your definite purpose, to what makes you tick. Are you ready? Hello, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of Back to Basics, Reconnecting to the Essence of You. Today, my guest is a very special one. Jonathan Adelstein is the president and CEO of the Wireless Infrastructure Association, which represents over 200 companies that build wireless broadband facilities in the entire country. He has a fascinating career and journey, as his past includes nominations by Presidents George Bush and Barack Obama to serve as Commissioner of the Federal Communication Commission and Administrator of the United States Department of Agriculture Rural Utilities Services. Personally, I'm honored to have Jonathan here because I've only had like four telecom people in my podcast, and Jonathan is someone I have on super high esteem. Hello, Jonathan, and welcome to Back to Basics. Leticia, thanks for having me. This is a wonderful opportunity. I always enjoy spending time with you and getting into the the basics here. I love it. And, and you know, it's uh, the older I become, and now I can say at 48, uh, almost 48, I realize that, you know, when you work, you have to have a passion and you have to have greater impact. And I've learned so much for you in the past years as I got involved in the FCC and all other things, but I've learned I've learned that you can really do something that's meaningful at a very high level. And so I'm fascinated by your journey and how you got there. Well, well, it's so interesting because you talk about passion. I think passion is what really makes a person successful. If you really believe in what you're doing and you feel strongly about it. And I've, I've spent many years trying to hone bringing what I do together with what my passions are. And uh, it's been a long lifelong journey to do that because it, it never ends. You know, there's always times when it wanes and waxes and increases, but how do you link what you love with your passion? It's easy to do if you decide, you know, I'm just going to follow my passion and do what I really care about and make things meaningful. I don't have time to waste with things that just aren't particularly meaningful to me. And that's why you're a perfect guest for Back to Basics. And <laughs> and I told him before for the audience, before we started, because we, we work a lot together lately and are in comedies together. And so this is very exciting to me because I, I've seen Jonathan the person and Jonathan the professional and I'm in awe for both of them. And so I'm very excited about being able to ask this question. Tell me, Jonathan, as a, you know, as a child, as a little boy, how were you, you know, what were you passionate about? Were you a social kid? What was your family life like? Well, it was really different back then. I think I was still trying to find my my way. And I lived in and was raised in Rapid City, South Dakota. And like you, my family was in the construction business for many years. I know your business goes way back. And my grandfather started a construction company in South Dakota in 1925, if you can believe that. And it's still going today. Uh, we sold it in 98 and diversified a little bit into real estate, but the company is still operating after uh, nearly 100 years now. So, you know, the question is, you know, what got me going? My parents thought they were kind of worldly that, you know, South Dakota wasn't the best place to get an education. So they shipped me off to prep school. I didn't even know what a prep school was. 
but it was one called Andover. You might've heard of it, Phillips Academy Andover in Massachusetts. And I went through a real culture shock. I couldn't believe it. I didn't even know there was a world like that that existed. So it really shook me out of my small town worldview. And you know, I was going to school with people like literally John F. Kennedy and, uh, and a Rockefeller wow. and Firestone. These are the kind of names that went to Andover as the top prep school in the United States. And I was kind of like a fish out of water. I really didn't love it, enjoy it, but I was, my eyes were open. You know, sometimes like exercise, the things that are best for you aren't always easy or fun. And that was like exercise for my whole being. And I said, look, I got to get out of here. I got to go West. I want to get as far from the East Coast as possible after seeing the <laughs> sort of elitist, hierarchical, old school Brahmins of, you know, the Boston Andover area. So I went out to school at Stanford out West, which was much more laid back but yet very intense intellectually. And that's where I really started finding my passion about things. You know, I got into student government and studied government and studied Plato. And, and Plato talked about bringing into government wisdom, you know, somebody who really had a sort of philosopher attitude. And I decided to really try to be engaged in government. I wanted to go to Washington and I wanted to um, do what I could to make a difference but I decided I had to get the best possible education to do that. Uh, so I studied political science. I studied history and tried to understand America and what was going on so that when I got to Washington, I would know the context we were operating and try to move it in the right direction. And I've been really fortunate because I managed to land a great job, you know, on Capitol Hill, which is really hard to do. Uh, but your first job is most important because, you, you know, like a lot of industries, you can't get a job unless you have work experience in that industry. So I started as an intern, but then getting that first job, it led to another job, led to another one, and ultimately led me to work for the majority leader, Senator Tom Daschle. I finally got back to my own senator from South Dakota after working for a senator from Michigan and a senator from Arkansas, back to my own senator who happened to become the Democratic leader. And that was really my ticket to sort of the big time. I was able to see huge picture, get involved at the highest level of government with somebody who was as passionate as anybody I've ever met and as dedicated to doing the right thing, I was able to serve him and learn from him. And that is really uh, how I got my, my start, 25-year career in government. That is amazing. And would you say that you saw, because for how you've explained it right now, it's like you saw it very clear. I want to make a difference and I want to go into government to make a difference. Was that always clear to you or you kind of had a time where you weren't also sure on how to make that difference? I really wasn't clear on it until college. You know, I started studying political science and, and, you know, reading about the philosophers and thinking about the big picture of how do you, how do you make government a better place through study and thought and, and wisdom, um, which isn't easy to do. Uh, it takes a lot of work to learn those things. But I applied myself to do it because I had then something to work for, you know, as opposed to doing something abstract. I was thinking, I'm learning this because someday I want to try to apply it. You know, what, what is the history of this country? What happened, you know, in, in the days of Jim Crow in the South, and then it moved to civil rights era and all the issues we had there. You could look at the scope of history and these things we see just repeat. And if you don't know the past, it's very hard to direct things towards the future. And I maybe had a glorious vision of what I could do because I was looking at these big picture issues, but I ended up actually very lucky to get into some channels that led me to be able to, really work on a very big level, you know, dollars of federal budgetary resources and 
massive programs uh, that affected you know millions of lives. It's kind of a unique opportunity to to do that in Washington, but you don't get paid you know like you do in the private sector, but you have outsized impact and influence on the world around you. Uh, so it really paid off. You know, it was meaningful, but not necessarily financially as rewarding. But um, you know, I had the the means partly because I came from this family that had a business for many years. It gave me a little bit of extra support so I could not live like a complete pauper. You know, I wasn't living in luxury, but uh, you know, I was able to supplement my federal salary a little bit. So I was able to make it for a long time. Most people can't survive for 25 years in government. And I was able, I was able to do it. And that and that's fascinating because I think, well, I I was born and raised in Venezuela. So it's like the politics and all that, it's always like a different world. And I was raised with the with the mentality like, you know, let others make the change. I don't know why, but I always kind of in within me, I always feel like exactly what you're saying. That's why I'm I'm so curious. And I'm sure people out there are curious because I know there's people out there that want to help make a change and they just don't know how to. And then by coincidence in telecom and now in these things that I've been working lately and the digital divide, and we're going to get into what the Wireless Infrastructure Association does because everybody has a cell phone. And I am interested in people out there knowing the amount of work that the industry and that the trade associations and all the people that contribute do so that we can all watch Netflix on our phones. <laughs> and and you're at the leadership of that. But I think that there's so many ways to contribute. And I realized, okay, you don't have to also go into politics to make a big impact and make a difference and bringing good to your community. That, that's for sure. I mean, so many people like you in industry that you know, you helped out the government as you headed a workforce development committee of the FCC. Uh, but yet in your daily business, through your, your ethics and your dedication to doing the right thing, you make a, a difference and you also help diversify an industry that really needs it. So you're uh, living proof that you can do it outside of government. I mean, to me, in government, I kind of fell into telecom fairly incidentally. It was Some people spend their lives wanting to be a telecom lawyer or being in the industry. I was actually, believe it or not, a social security expert. I started my career, you know, doing... Um, that work, and I worked on the Senate Aging Committee, focusing on Social Security and getting a bunch of laws changed and did investigations that helped improve the administration of the program. And Senator Daschle's uh, telecommunications aide left to become the head of the Maryland Public Service Commission. And I said, Senator Daschle, I'd like to do that job. And he said, well, you've done a pretty good job on other things. Why don't you do telecom? I was interested in economic policy. I was interested in the field, but it wasn't my focus. Uh, but it became my focus as, you know, that was one of the many responsibilities I had. I was still doing Social Security and advising him on budget and financial services. But uh, when an opportunity came up that there was an opening on the Federal Communications Commission, uh, the Bush administration was taking the recommendation from the Senate majority leader as to who to put on there. And after a big, it's harder than you think to get it, but after a big struggle among a lot of people that wanted it, he ended up suggesting me to President Bush. And I got nominated and confirmed. So then I became really dedicated in this field of telecommunications. And, and like any field, you know, you, the, as you get into the depths of it, there's many ways you can contribute and make a difference. I was in a, again, super fortunate position as a commissioner of the FCC, regulating, you know, businesses that account for 15% of the U.S. economy, getting a really front row seat on uh, the entire industry and different segments of it, not just wireless, but wireline media, and it was all there, you know, in one agency. So 
that was a, a great bird's eye view. And then, you know, when I came to time to run the rural utility service, I started focusing on infrastructure and how do you build out to rural areas. We are the successor agency to the Rural Electrification Administration. And just like they're talking about today, we wanted to do for broadband what the Roosevelt administration done for electricity, get it out to every corner of America. So that became sort of infrastructure focused. So when this job came available, running the Wireless Infrastructure Association, I jumped at it because I said, here is exactly what you know I'm interested in is building its infrastructure, its telecommunications, and it's consistent with you know my family history in, in building roads and bridges and highways during the expansion of the highway system in the 50s. My grandfather was very involved in that. So here we were trying to expand broadband networks, and I finally made it to the private sector. It only took me 25 years, but I learned, you're right, Leticia, that in the private sector, you can make a huge difference. Um, just wherever I go, I try to think about how do I take this opportunity and do the most good I can while making sure that I'm, you know, having a meaningful sort of fun life. And, and that's, it's worked out so far, but uh, I've been very fortunate. So who knows? Maybe my luck will run out soon, but I'm going to keep. No, I don't think through. so. I think you've done a fantastic job. And honestly, it's like we've been members of the WIA for, for a while, but but I can say that, that, you know, in the past years under your tenure, it has been, you know, that you can, I think it permeates when you want to do good, besides that you're an extremely kind person and you, you push others, you empower others. I think the industry feels that. And, uh, you know, when you have a great leader like that, everybody wants to get more involved and, and makes you think, as I say about that, sometimes I'm frustrated with situations, uh, as I was sharing with you off record. And then you say, "Am I? can I make a more of a contribution from the outside or from the inside? You start thinking like that. And I think that when you think of the collective before of yourself, I think that's a good change. And I think even COVID is bringing that to, to us, right? That we're all wondering, are we, are, am I doing what am I supposed to do with my life? You put it really well. You put it really well. You know, it's really flattering to hear that because what you described, and I don't really say it out loud, is kind of what I've tried to do, which is to empower people, not on my own staff as the CEO of this organization. You know, I, I just assume that they do it and get the credit and get something done as me because A, it's less work for me, and B, then I have somebody that, you know, can keep plugging away. You know, I'll give them direction and I'll give them, you know, maybe an assignment or two, but eventually I'd rather have them just kind of run it on their own and I'll just be the big picture or help when I can. And same with the industry. We want to engage our members and find out what, what they need and what works for them. And that's really what you described. So I hope I've been able to do what you say because that's certainly been been my goal, but I've never made it as explicit as the way you described it. So thank you for Putting it that way. Well, it's a a compliment and it should come, as I said, I make it a purpose not to interview people from my industry because my audience knows this is not, I don't monetize this podcast. I don't get customers from this podcast. I get, what I want is to inspire people to put your story out there of how you started and how you had this inkling of, can I do something big here? Can I contribute? And then make them think about how they can contribute. But you, on the other hand, are a perfect guest for both reasons, because we are in the same industry, but also because your journey is really, in my opinion, a back to basics journey. And uh, and that's why. And then we are both on a, on a mission of highlighting our industry to people that don't know about it. And as I said, everybody has a phone, but there's so much behind that phone to make it work. So many people depend on it. We were named an essential workforce for the first time in March last year because of the pandemic. 
But in my opinion, we were an essential workforce way before that. And now people realize the importance of the telecommunication workers. And I know WIA is doing a huge amount of work in, in raising that awareness. So I, I want you to share with us uh, what's new and exciting in the telecom industry. And I know workforce is a big, big discussion component of what's going on. The workforce is a good example of how to link, you know, my passion with what I'm doing here. Because before I got here, it wasn't really a focus of WIA. And I, I started to learn from some members of the industry and members of ours that they were having real issues with, with staff. And, and one of them, Kelly Dunn, was trying to get veterans into our industry and train them to deal with the shortage. So it was kind of a double winner where you get industry needs met and our members needs met to get workers. And they would be veterans who were at the time disproportionately unemployed and also very diverse. You know, our veteran community happens to be uh, disproportionately diverse to the general population, which means if you can draw from veterans, you're going to enrich the diversity of the industry. So this was just a hit on all levels. I said, we got to get into that. And it took years and years. I mean, we've been working at this since about 2014. And, you know, 2015, we got support from the FCC and the Department of Labor to establish TIRAP as a, and ourselves as the national sponsor, WIA. And we've slowly but surely built it. You know, we, we've um, won a few DOL contracts and subcontracts to kind of keep it alive. We put our own resources into it. Now, you know, after a lot of years of work, it's finally gaining traction. You know, the, the workforce industry kind of comes and goes. Sometimes there's real demand and sometimes it's really slack, which has made it difficult for us because when it's slack, a lot of people leave our industry and they never come back thinking, I was working in that industry. I was getting, I had a good job with good pay. And then, you know, the contracts dried up. My company shrunk, made me off. I'm not going to go back to that industry. I'll just go into housing. That's always booming. You know, and then we just lost somebody that we had trained up and spent a lot of time and effort to put resources into. So I don't know if I can fix that problem of the sort of boom and bust in telecom, you know, try to educate people about it and how it impacts the workforce. But other things drive that budgets and, um, you know, Wall Street and they're, they're driving the, you know, CapEx amounts that, our biggest, you know, carrier members make. And, and so it's difficult to resolve that. But our industry, you know, we, we, we had times when things were really good because there was a lot of demand and then times when it wasn't so much. You know, right now we're back, as, as you pointed out, in a high demand time. I mean, all the companies are building infrastructure on steroids. The government's talking about investing another $65 billion in, in infrastructure. Uh, so we're really well-timed where people like you are having a hard time finding qualified people to do the work or frankly, anybody, you know, who would have dreamed a few months ago in the pandemic and now we couldn't even find somebody to do a job and unemployment was so high, just such a short time ago. But I think our timing is good because if we do the right thing, eventually the world comes around and here we are. Now we have 50 plus companies that have joined our, our association of telecommunications companies that are doing apprenticeships. We have, over 2,000 apprentices uh, involved in the program. So it's really starting to take off. And, and what's most rewarding is these are people, many of them, you know, veterans and others that we can change their lives. We can get them into an industry that is going to grow. Hopefully they'll be able to stick with it and grow with it and start really strong because they'll start with an apprenticeship, which our industry never had before. An apprenticeship allows people to get in here and, and learn right at the beginning how to do it right instead of just being thrown in, which is the way it works in our industry here. Just go out there and figure this out. And somebody will kind of tell them what, how they did it. And they were never trained. So sometimes they're right, sometimes they're not. Uh, you know, we're, we're such a new 
growing industry that we never had the proper training in place to get people up front prepared to do the job. They're just thrown into them. And it's not a good way to do business because it means that the jobs are done less efficiently. There's a lot of rework. There's some safety issues, particularly, you know, when you're climbing tall towers, people need to do this right um, when they're doing dangerous work, when they're doing work that's important, as you pointed out, for the whole economy. I mean, telecom serves needs to save the whole economy during the pandemic. Where have we been without these Zoom calls and podcasts and um, people working from home and people educating from home and healthcare at home? The list goes on and on. And we made all that possible. So now people understand that, but somebody's got to build these networks. And it's really something uh, that I'm proud to be a part of and trying to make sure that we get the right people to do that. And we've worked closely together. You really led the way when you headed that work group, um, advisory group for the Federal Communications Commission on workforce. And you found the same problems, right? That we're, we need all these programs in place. Absolutely. No. And, and thank you for that. And yes, and this is something I'm passionate about is one, to let people know that our workforce, it's really, like I always say, it's a cool workforce. We enable telecommunications. And so it's sad that the young people out there, they don't even know there's a possibility, a job for them in our industry. And that's really something I became really passionate about is how do we do outreach? And that's even on my social media now through this podcast, if you know someone that's young and that doesn't like the office job and that likes to travel and it's active, this, you know, telecom, it's it's an ideal job for them. And it's a technical job. And the great thing about Tyra, which by the way, by the way, is the apprenticeship program that uh, WI administers at uh, Department of Labor Apprenticeship Program Register. And that it's that you can have occupations and you can learn and cross skills. There's 11 occupations in Tyrup. So also people think only tower climbing and say, I don't work good in heights. But there's so much more that you can do in the industry. It's not only about climbing towers. And so I think that's something that's a key component into as we bring young people and and minorities and, and other people that have never considered the industry is it's not you're going to be doing one thing. You can do many things as long as you're willing to evolve with the industry. Now there's 5G, but it's going to be 6G. And, and like, you know, there's an evolution continuous. And so the opportunity is huge. You're exactly right. I mean, we want to give people a pathway to a career, not just a, a job. And there's a lot more than tower climbing. Tower climbing is super important. We also are about to create a small cell technician. People might have heard of small cells. Instead of everything going on big towers now, increasingly, we're putting these uh, 5G antennas on smaller sites that might be on the side of a building or a telephone pole or a light pole. So you're still maybe up there, but not nearly as high. And you get there in a bucket truck um, or maybe just on a ladder. But people don't know how to do that. We've never had a training program. We're, we're establishing the first small cell technician training program at a community college in Michigan. We hope to spread that around the country. And we're going to establish this apprenticeship occupation to go with it. So, yeah, there's all kinds of things. We're going to RF engineering. You don't have to be a you know field person. You could be an engineer to be a, an apprentice. But, uh, you know, site acquisition, which is finding a place to put a tower or to put, a, put an antenna on a small cell. There's, you know, project managers and there's foremen. And, you know, we want to pe- move people up the chain. So people that are dynamic that really want to move ahead have a, a pathway through apprenticeship that they can move up and move ahead and, and be properly educated. And then they can mentor others as they become experienced and bring others behind them up 
uh, doing the work right from the get-go. Yeah, no, and your vision, I think it's really right on because I know also under your tenure at Tech, which is the kind of the, the, the training uh, arm of, of WIA, you not only have many in-person trainings, which, you know, help companies like mine that are in telecom bring their employees there and get trained, but also the, the amount of online curricula that, that you guys are developing that people can access. You know, I think that's, that's going to br- put us a step closer to all these guys listening to this that know, you know, I want to go into telecom, but I'm a little bit intimidating because I'm not a technical person. And your example is the perfect one. You weren't into telecom until midway your career, and then you jump into it and you you are great at it. So I think also there's that myth that unless you're an engineer or you have a technical background, you cannot come into this industry. Yeah, that's right. And they can take these classes online or we've really done two things. We talked about the apprenticeship program, but we also have the Tech and thank you for raising that Telecommunications Education Center. So we've made our own suite of, of educational offerings. Like what is 5G? 5G 101. You know, what is wireless technology? We have the basics out there. So people can take those. And you know, we found that major engineering companies, some of the one of the best ones in the country, which is uh, NBNC, Tom King is the, the CEO of that. And he said, let me help you beta this. And he figured when he beta it, it was gonna need a lot of work. He said, it doesn't need that much work. Let me give it to my employees and he gave it to a handful and they said, this is really good. They gave us some little tweaks, but they didn't have to rework it. And they said, let's give this to our entire staff. These are engineers that know what they're doing, but because there'd never been a wireless education offered, they might've gotten an electrical engineering degree at an advanced you know, institution, maybe at Virginia Tech or some specialized school that are some of the best in the country, but they never really studied what we call radio frequency. Uh, because it's not particularly focused on our offer because it's such a new field, wireless. But it's such a huge field now, we've got to catch up. So we said, let's create this curriculum under tech to give people that. And we're finding that, you know, people that are already very knowledgeable in the field are finding benefit from getting back to basics, as you put it in your podcast. You know, learning maybe for the first time, they knew all these things and they'd seen them all and they kind of, but they never had it all in one good four-hour program or a two-day program, one day, depending on what they want to take. So we bring people down to them in person. And as you pointed out, during the pandemic, we had to go online fast. We probably should have been doing that anyway, but the pandemic forced us to fast forward. And we got a lot of our uh, offerings online and we're still putting more online. So I guess that's a, a good thing the pandemic did make us do what we, we, we needed to do anyway and make it more online. But we also like to teach in person. You know, There's no replacement for having a Good old-fashioned classroom, and we'll be doing that again. We're doing it here shortly at this program called South by Southwest. We'll be doing in-person training, and uh, that way the teacher and the student cannot interact just on these little, you know, Zoom calls, but do it face to face, and it makes it easier for people to kind of engage and go back and forth. I totally agree, and I cannot wait on also to have the industry events because the audience must know one of the things I also admire of you is that in every industry event we have. Uh, Jonathan has a band and you're a musician. And I want to hear about that because I know that's one of the things that makes you tick. And what I admire of you is that you put it out there. And I find that so many people, they feel that they have to kind of hide the passions they have sometimes because they don't they don't want to 
seem like they're not professional enough. I don't know if you've ever encountered this, but they feel like, oh, oh yeah. well, I'm a surfer, but I don't want people to know because then they're going to think I'm always surfing or something. You embrace your music and you put it out there. And I've always loved that about you. Well, your husband's a great guitarist too. And I've played with him. He's, he's, he's wonderful. Um, so you know the story and and he's more professional than me. I, I think he actually has played professionally and I've done it kind of as an advanced amateur. But, you know, it goes back to the idea about about passion, you know, I remember one of the most influential books I read, it might seem kind of cheesy, but it was Tony Robbins, mm -hmm. if you know him. Absolutely. So I'm into all the self-improvement stuff. I'm a big fan. He's, <laughs> one the, he's one of the early gurus of it. He had a book called Ultimate Power, one of his first books. And he said, link what you're doing with your passion. You know, in other words, what is it you really care about? What does it really motivate you? And try to move your life toward, toward that and see what feeds that. And so I tried to bring music in everything I do because I it didn't take Tony to make me realize that was something I was passionate about. I mean, I just loved it. Went to a lot of live music. And I basically taught myself how to play because I just had to hear that note. You know, I was like driven. Uh, and this wasn't because of Tony. I, I was driven to kind of get that sound. So I heard it. I said, can I make that? And I, I found easy instruments to do it with. Harmonica is easy because, you know, in for me it is uh, because you don't have to learn every scale. I could just take, you know, harmonicas are, it's more advanced theory than you probably need, but you know, each harmonica is in a certain key and there's 12 keys. So rather than learn all 12 keys, I would just be able to learn how to play one and I could just switch them out. So that was the lazy man's way to go because I hadn't been trained as a kid. One thing my parents didn't do is force me to go through all those lessons. So now I'm taking piano lessons in my fifties. Oh my God. Uh, I took it in my thirties. <laughs> Let me know how that goes. <laughs> it's never too late. Uh, I'm having a good time with it. You know, I finally found a good teacher and and it's because I want to learn, you know, so I'll throw something on, you know, the stream and then start playing it because I want to play it, you know, and, but what Tony taught, I brought into, I bring into my profession now, like when I was on the Hill working in the Senate Aging Committee, you wouldn't think you could bring Senate Aging um, Committee into music, but I started learning that there's this thing called music therapy, which helps people with Alzheimer's. If you'll play music the people with Alzheimer's from when they were growing up back then, it was, you know, music from the forties, maybe Gershwin or Irving Berlin. And you play these songs to them. They can actually sing them. They might not remember that you're their son, but they'll remember the words to a song that they learned growing up. Um, it was very deep. And it actually then brings the connection back. If the person, maybe if you're doing it with a child or somebody brings them back for the moment. Uh, but it's not just about Alzheimer's rhythm can help people with Parkinson's to get back into their own rhythm uh, where they're having issues with it. And they can actually keep pace with a, with a drum playing it themselves, even if they can't necessarily because of the Parkinsonian conditions, keep, you know, a steady gait. Um, it, it's amazing what it can do. So I said, well, here I am at the aging committee and I've learned that there's this ability to, you know, have music help aging. And I read this Tony Robbins book. I said, why don't we do a hearing and bring in, people that know what they're talking about to talk in front of the Senate Aging Committee. So I went to the Senator. It was Harry Reid from Nevada, later became the majority leader. And I was working with him on the Aging Committee. And he said, he thought it was kind of crazy. Did, really? But he, he actually was a secret music fan. Mm -hmm. He let on. But I found out through this process that he was a big fan of music. He was like, okay, let's give that a try. So I kept connecting. My, I was a fan of the Grateful Dead music. And I invited Mickey Hart from the Grateful Dead to testify. And he actually agreed. Oh, wow. I got Oliver Sacks, who was a great anthropologist, 
um, who've written a lot about music and use music to come and testify. Theodore Bikel from um, from uh, the theme of Fiddler on the Roof and, and Broadway testified, and we had other experts come and testify. And this hearing was this sort of lively uh, affair where people started dancing at the beginning. People came and played music. I'd never seen any hearing like it. Nobody else had. And it actually led to legislation. We got music therapy authorized under the Older Americans Act. Uh, we got a million dollars appropriated for research that showed that rhythm can help seniors. Um, and, you know, it brought me a bunch of backstage passes to dead shows. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, that's awesome. Years, worked out well. So, you know, I found you, you link your passion to what you're doing. And there's usually a way. You might not think there is, but if you're really into it, you can find a way to bring what you love into what you're doing, even if it isn't immediately obvious. And that that really helped launch me. I mean, in a way that really impressed Senator Reed and and later on, you know, Senator Daschle heard about the enthusiasm and it kind of gave me a little bit of a of a nice um, patina, you know, that when they were looking for an FCC commissioner, I thought this guy's got a little verve. Let's give it to him. I mean, that hearing back in 91 helped me get this job back in 2000 because people in the Senate said this guy's got a little something extra, you know, because I was willing to have, let it hang out. I was willing to bring something a little risky and bring it in. And the same thing happens to music. You know, I've been playing in bands and things for many years now, but I was probably not as good when I first started. I wasn't afraid to get out there and do it. And now I'm much more refined because I've had a lot more years of experience and I'm more, even more, you know, willing to just get out there. But one thing I haven't really done is play um, keyboard uh, in a public setting. I almost did once um, at, a, at one of our shows, they had a Hammond B3. I'm, I've got a Hammond B3 at home. I'm practicing on and they had one sitting in BB King's uh, club that we were playing at but they didn't plug it in. So I was, I'd practiced, I was ready to do Proud Mary, but <laughs> wasn't set up. So I just thought, oh my God. Someday, maybe I'll debut my keyboard at uh, the next show we have in October in Orlando. I hope oh, I can. Oh, now it's on record, Jonathan. So now you have to practice. <laughs> <laughs> I, have, I think that's a great idea. You know, people expect to, to see you play. I think that would be a great, great uh, first event after after all this craziness. So, but thank you. I think that story really is the essence of Back to Basics is how we have to go and be a little bit brave and courageous and stick to who we are and, and what our essence is. And for you, it was music, this love for music, and you brought it into play. You dare to change things because I can just imagine maybe how many people say, are you crazy? You want to do that in a hearing? And how many people maybe didn't think it was a great idea? And yet, you know, magic happened. It really did. And it led to real change. And, and it was, it worked out well for, I think the senior citizens benefit, but it worked out well for me. I think thinking about, are you in it for me? Or are you in it for other people? It was where you started sort of the collective versus the individual. I've learned in my life that the more you kind of dedicate to others, the more you benefit. I mean, I got to say this did benefit me because I was kind of a dead fan and getting backstage passes was key. <laughs> Later, you know, I got to know the Almond Brothers and all kinds of fun bands through this sort of connection so it worked out well for me, but the point of it wasn't about me. You know, it was about doing the right thing. And, and wherever I go, I try to find, how do I take this opportunity and reach the highest potential? Like, what is the, what can you do here? And that's sort of what we were talking about earlier with WIA. I mean, really what we do is we advocate like a lobbyist for the industry. Uh, but we didn't have to go into the training business or into the workforce development business. But this was an opportunity that was just sitting here waiting for us to exploit. And, you know, I did it because I cared and wanted to do the most I could with the job that I had. But in the end, I think it's been good for us. I mean, it's increased our, our budget. Um, it's increased our visibility. It's got us, you know, new members. 
like like you others that might not have known about us if it wasn't for this effort. Uh, but that we didn't really look at it that way. But in the end, it did benefit the whole association. And then, you know, whatever, you know, funding we raise for a nonprofit, we put back into advocacy for the industry. So the degree we can make a profit, which I think we should be able to do on these things because we're that adding value, we take that back as a nonprofit into benefiting the industry by investing in lawyers and, you know, briefs and staff that are then advocating for the industry in Congress, the White House, the FCC. Uh, so it's a kind of virtuous cycle. Absolutely. And it's really, it's a, as you say, workforce is a, is a driver where you can see impacting an individual's life, especially veterans and minorities. I mean, when I heard, you know, that the veterans, what they, what the government investing to put in them in, you know, sending them, you know, to, to abroad and then what they invest when they come back and how they struggle with getting back into civilian life. And this is such a great vehicle for, for doing that. So I thank you for all the great work you do in the association. And it's very exciting to be part of it. And with that, you know, I have one more thing to ask. And you talk about music, but I always say, and you say, this is a roller coaster. There's ups and then downs. In those times where you've been down, besides music, is there anything else that makes you tick? Any place you go, any activity you do that really say, okay, this is this is what I'm about? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a meditator. So I try to sort of erase the, the ego. And it gets rid of when you're in a deep meditation, focus on the moment. Um, and meditation is about focus. It's just focusing, concentrating on whatever it might be so that whatever other things are roiling just kind of fade away into the background. They might still pop up in your mind, but then I don't follow them. They just sort of pass through like a cloud. And that's the way you look at thoughts when you're meditating, like clouds passing through. And then the stillness and the openness of the sky is just there. And it's always there, but we don't always notice because we're so caught up in following this cloud or that cloud. So when things get rough, I just go into, you know, a meditation and it helps with music too, uh, a lot, because since meditation is focused concentration, taking the awareness to a, a one-pointed spot, the thing that initially got me into it, because I'm kind of a type A anxious person a little bit, is the the music, the melody can be a focus of concentration. This is something I, I don't know if people talk about it much, but it's talk about an easy thing to meditate on. What do you want to meditate on? How about music? So just your favorite piece and just put completely one point of focus. People do that anyway, but they don't even think about it. So that's the easiest thing to meditate on. When I play music, it's the same thing. I focus on that, that melody or what, what I'm playing or what I'm hearing. And that as much as I can get one pointed focus on it will improve and everything else falls away. So that's a kind of easy sort of entry level meditation is to just put your complete awareness on, on the melody line or the rhythm line, or whatever it is that about the music you like. You might like the bass line. Well, you know, might be like the whole song. You might like a whole orchestra playing a Mozart symphony. And it's pretty easy to focus on that and just watch everything else fade away. And then you can take it to what's much harder, something like the breath. Breath is not nearly as easy to focus on because it, gets, it seems like boring. And then you get other stuff moving through and distracting. And that, that takes more work. So start with what's easy music and then you know work into things like uh that are more and more difficult or, or sophisticated and then the mind settles down more and more so music we always knew uh soothes the savage beast as they say but that's that's a, a good entry level into a, a meditative experience where things that are bothering you just fall away and 
You're just in the moment. Well, thank you. That's a great closing thought because I know, you know, a lot of my guests have been meditators, teachers, spiritual teachers. And for me, it's very powerful to hear someone of your stature, of you know, that does the important work you do every day in D.C. at the highest level to bring it also to basic saying you need to have these things into your life to really be your better self. So I thank you for that, Jonathan. And I thank you for the time for being here and for, for being a great leader, really. Well, what a great podcast. Thanks for letting somebody from telecom from your field into it. I, I really enjoyed talking to you. Great, great discussion. Never done a podcast like this. I'm honored to have done it with you. Thank you, Jonathan. Well, until the next episode of Back to Basics. Take care. You've been listening to Back to Basics. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook. If you haven't yet, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming platforms. This is the best gift you can give us. Join me next week for another Back to Basics conversation. And if you want to find out about other exciting things I'm working on, visit LeticiaLatino.com. Thank you, and until the next time.